Good morning, church. Good morning, all our friends and our family at home. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And um, there's no other place I'd rather be. My name is Sarah, and um, I've been around here for a while. <laughs> if I haven't met you yet, I would love the privilege uh, to be able to meet you. Um, so I wanted to share uh, something, but before I, I, I share this, I, I just wanted to share a piece of my heart, um, just how much I love this, this church family. We were, Tommy and I were looking over some blessing cards that we have, and we were picking out some of these. They're blessings right from scripture, <clears throat> from God's word. And we were picking out some of these blessings to just pray and speak over our children. And um, this is the one that I picked out to pray for you guys. And I want you to know that um, you're obviously not our children, but <laughs> we, love, we love you. Um, like you are uh, flesh of flesh and bone of bone to Tommy and I. And there's not a day that goes by that you're not on our hearts, that you're not in our prayers, um, that we're not thinking of you and thanking God for you. And this is a blessing out of Deuteronomy 28, verses 3 through 6. And this is, this is my prayer for our Grace Life family. Blessed shall you be when you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body. Blessed shall be the work of your hands. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord in your life forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. And um, so on this screen, we have our QR code, and you can simply just hold up your phone, take a little picture, hold up your camera, and that's going to help you connect with us. It's going to bring you to our scripture reading for this morning. It'll take you to some uh, buttons that you can either send us a prayer request, you can find out some more information about the community groups at our church, uh, you can do your online giving through this uh, little page too. Also, on that note, we, we don't pass a plate at Grace Life. We have an offering in the tithe box in the lobby. If you uh, want to give to the work of the kingdom that way, it's also available to you. And um, so, yeah, help yourself to that. And then also every Sunday, we have a special Grace Life welcome that we share. And um, if I can just be honest, I feel like maybe just over the last two years, this is becoming more and more uh, just an expression of probably most of our hearts and the times that we're living in, and um, even those who have been walking with the Lord for years, there's just what feels like a uh, more and more of a resistance that just wants to see our faith fail, and um, this is just a great, uh, just hope-filled encouragement that we can we can share together every single Sunday morning, and knowing that you are uh, you resisting the. Uh, the work, honestly, of the enemy to keep you from your faith, to keep you from Christ, to keep you from the body of Christ. Every time you push and you uh, get in your car and you come to church, you show up at community group, you uh, even turn on your computer or your TV and you join us online. That's your beautiful resistance. And I want you to know that no matter how you feel <laughs> as you come in these doors, you are welcome. You're welcome to bring all your mess and um, all, your, all your weariness and um, and all your secrets, all of them, and um, you're welcome here, and God is with us, and he's with you. So here's our welcome. To all who mourn and need comfort, to all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a savior, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever else will come, Grace Life Church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ and offers welcome. And we are so glad that you are here. And now our scripture reading for today, we're back in Romans, 
and we'll be in Romans, beginning in Romans chapter 5, towards the end. We'll start in verse 20, and then we'll read through chapter 6, verse 4. So here we go, <clears throat> Romans 5, 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning, Grace Life Church. My name is Tommy Clayton. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm grateful you came on this cold, wet, windy morning to Grace Life. Thankful that you're here. I'm going to pause and uh, ask God to bless our time together. I just want to echo everything that, that was my wife, Sarah, said. We welcome you. We extend the welcome of God. Romans chapter 15 says, welcome one another to the glory of God, even as God and Christ welcome you. How did, how did Christ welcome us as we were? But he didn't leave us that way. He, he changed us. Amen. So let's just pause for a second. We all have a tendency to be distracted, and uh, I want to ask the Lord just to be gracious to us and the Spirit to come and settle our hearts so that we can be attentive to His Word in the next few moments. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege, the freedom, the joy we have of gathering together. And uh, I'm not under any illusion, Lord, that, that uh, the comprehensive... Um, feeling of every heart in this room is that I'm so happy to be here right now. I can't wait for, for what comes next. Lord, many of us come even at war within ourselves, not wanting to come, but, but not wanting to stay away. And I pray that you would do a work of transformative grace during this time together. You would remind us all the shockingly and ridiculously good news of Christianity. What separates Christianity from every other worldview, every other religion, every other ideology and philosophy that, that, uh, that the world values, Lord. And I pray that the, that the glory and the, and the grace and the good news would just shine through and that you would heal our hearts. As we sang uh, in those lyrics earlier, Lord, there are many who are searching for answers far and wide, and only you give the healing and grace that our hearts always hunger for. So may we hunger for that grace today, and may you feed it to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip Yancey, I don't know if that's a name that uh, is familiar to you. He's been a Christian author for many, many decades. He, uh, he describes himself in this way, a pilgrim still in recovery from bad church upbringing, searching for the possibility of a faith rooted in grace instead of rooted in fear. I recently finished his book, which was a memoir. It was a, it was a biography that people had been asking him to write forever, and he was very reluctant to do that just because he had such a, a, a really checkered history with church, and he didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. But finally, he wrote it. Uh, it's called Where the Light Fell, and I read it through, through tears. It, it's just an amazing book, and you really begin to understand why Philip Yancey has made grace the theme of all of his writing, why he would write a book called The Jesus I Never Knew. And you get it, you're like, oh, okay, I get it now, it makes sense. Uh, but in this book, in this memoir, Where the Light Fell, he recount, uh, recalls his surprising journey from a strict fundamentalist upbringing in the South to a life of compassion and grace. He grew up in Georgia, he and his brother Marshall, when they were just little toddlers and couldn't even remember their dad, their dad was a pastor, and he died, I think, of tuberculosis, and, and their mother was a widow, and she did her best to try to make ends meet, and she was a renowned Bible teacher locally. So they remember their mother as this strict religious lady uh, who was really harsh with them, really rigid with them. And she actually held a view that was popular in that time and in that place. Uh, it was called Victory, Victorious Christian Living, which is a good thing. We all want to live in victory. But it took the form of 
believing that a Christian could actually rise to a plane of, exist of existence where they no longer sinned. So that was kind of her expectations on her and her two boys. They're going to get to a place where they're victorious over, over sin, meaning they're never going to sin in word and deed and thought. That was, that was their life. That was their upbringing. So he grew up in the culture of Southern Bible Belt fundamentalism, and it was in the mounting social pressure of the 60s. All this stuff was going on with music, civil rights, with rebellion, and he yearned for freedom. He yearned for redemption. Just like that song was singing, he was looking for answers. He felt so oppressed. So uh, Philip, growing up, was surrounded by rules, 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 everywhere he looked. Commandments, prohibition, principles, codes, barriers, boundaries, and they were all somehow connected to him being close to God. But he didn't feel close to God at all. He felt very, very, very far away from God, and he felt like he was being pushed Further and further, the deeper, the deeper entrenched he got in religion and the, the form of Christianity, there where he lived, the further away he felt from God, the more alienated he felt, and the more angry he felt. He said this, he said, I've always thought of God as an arm twister, a cosmic bully who schemes to break anyone who dares resist. And he says, I fully expected God to crush me someday, the threat my mother always held over mine and my brother's head. Well, he went off to Bible college, and I'm not going to throw shade on the Bible college. It's probably a place you've heard of, and there's even a lot of rumors that float around about the rules on that campus that were just so ridiculous. You couldn't walk on the same sidewalk with another girl. You couldn't do this. You couldn't do that, and I will just say those rules were true of this college. In fact, I'll, I'll just give you one example. They could not read the works of C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian author and apologist, because C.S. Lewis smoked a pipe. Don't read his books. He smoked a pipe. That's just to give you an idea of the culture that Philip Yancey grew up in. You can imagine what he thought of God and what he thought of Christianity. So he went off to Bible college, um, and he writes this. God hangs like a mist over the Bible college campus. He's sung to. He's testified about. He's studied. He's feared. Yet for me, whether in family, church, or college, the motions of faith have always proved unreliable. He feels like he's performing. It's not genuine. It's not authentic. He was very familiar with the Bible, but it held no meaning over him. It held no power within him. And he grew to resent God. Um, but in his junior year at that Bible college, something pretty astonishing happened. That's kind of the crux of the whole book. He had an assignment in one of his classes, a hermeneutics class. His, here was the assignment. Write an essay about a time when God spoke to you through a passage of the Bible. And he says he had no idea what to write because up until that time, to his knowledge, God had never spoken to him, let alone through the Bible, even though he knew the Bible backwards and forwards. But weeks later in a prayer gathering at a local secular university, not a Bible college, but a secular university that the kids of this Bible college were required to go every week and evangelize all the lost pagan students. They were required to go there and evangelize people, and then they were required to gather together and pray afterwards. And so when he was gathered together in a group of, of guys praying, something happened. He said uh, for the first time he prayed. Usually they would all pray, and then they would politely be silent and wait on him. Have you ever been there? And he never prayed, but he said this time, he, to his own surprise, he heard himself praying out loud. And this is what he prayed. God, here we are supposed to be concerned about these 10,000 students here at this university who are going to hell. Well, you know that I don't care if they all go to hell. If there is a hell, I don't even care if I go to hell. We're supposed to feel the same concern for university students here as the Good Samaritan felt in your parable about that bloody Jew lying in the ditch. I feel no such concern. I feel nothing. And then Yancey writes, he says, and then it happens. In the middle of my prayer, while I am admitting the true state of my heart, I don't care about anything. I don't feel anything. He says, the parable of the Good Samaritan comes into me in a new light. And I visualize the scene of that parable, he says. The image unnerves me. The apostate who doesn't believe in visions or in biblical parables, I am rendered speechless. Abruptly, I stop praying. I rise and I leave the room. 
And he says, I can't put that scene out of my mind. Out of my mind. In a single stroke, my cockiness has been shattered. I've caught a new and humbling glimpse of myself. In my arrogant and mocking condescension, maybe I'm the neediest one of all. What happened? Well, in his own words, the second that Philip Yancey got honest with God in his prayer, he said, this is all pretense. I don't, I don't like you. I don't know if I believe in you. I don't care if these people go to hell. The minute he got honest with God, raw and honest, something amazing happened. When he told God that he didn't love him and never had loved him, lightning struck. God did not slam the door in his face. He writes this. I was asking God to somehow, even though I didn't want him to, to give me the love of the Good Samaritan, who loved irrationally, with no reason, who loved a repulsive, filthy tramp in the ditch. Then it hit me, Philip Yancey says. I was the filthy tramp in the ditch. God was trying to help me, but every time he leaned over and he envisioned the face of the Good Samaritan as the face of Jesus in his vision, he says, Every time he leaned over, I spit in his face. What's more, I wanted to remain a filthy tramp, an intelligent, sophisticated, filthy tramp by choice. He said, but God's power caught me by surprise. It was a gift of grace that I neither, I neither sought nor desired. I felt chosen. I felt chosen. I cannot begin to answer for God. I can only accept the gift of free grace with open hands. I realized that winter night, praying on that college campus, that there is someone there who loves me. What happened to Philip Yancey? He discovered grace. He discovered grace for the first time in his life, and it changed him forever. And he dates his conversion back to that pr time of prayer with those guys. So that's what really this uh, passage is about and this sermon is about. It's about law and grace, two things that are often very confusing to people, unbelievers and believers alike. Philip Yancey uh, grew up with law, 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 rules, 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 and was a stranger to grace until he met it that night. So our sermon title is Law and Grace, and uh, three quick things will be on our way. Three points to this message. Number one, God gave us the law. You heard the scripture that was read in Romans 5, verse 20 and 21. The law came in. It literally reads, the law slipped in. Paul's been talking about Adam and Adam's rebellion against God, his transgression in the garden. And he says, death reigned all the way from Adam until Moses. And then something happened, the, the season, the epoch, the time period of Moses, the law slipped in, the law came. So point number one is God gave us the law. Point number two is the law can't change us. It can't change us. It was never intended to change us. I'm going to tell you what the purpose of the law is. And then point number three is the reign of grace is superior. The reign of grace is superior. So point number one, God gave us the law. And I want to make sure, because sermons like this can, uh, can be offensive to some people if they misunderstand what I'm saying. And it's usually offensive to religious people, to be, to be honest, because they think, what are you saying about the law? Uh, let me be clear, the law is good, the law is perfect, the law is, the law is righteous, and it's just. God says so several places in the Bible, it says it in Romans 7, it says it in, in the Old Testament, that has there ever been a God like Yahweh? who has given us a righteous law unlike any other nation on the face of the planet to reveal his will and who he is and what he's like. So the law is good and it's perfect and it's just. And God gave it. Moses did not write the Ten Commandments. He received the Ten Commandments, remember, from God on the mountain. God delivered them to Moses who brought them down to us. God gave us the law and it's perfect. It's perfect. It reveals the attributes of the one who designed it. Perfect, truthful just. And for a Jewish person, the law of God was the center of, the, of their life. They thought that the law of God was given to increase righteousness and to increase devotion and to increase holiness and to increase obedience. That's what the Jewish person thought. But in their experience, the law did the exact opposite, didn't it? The law did the exact opposite. And that's what Paul is telling us here. What Paul says here about the law would have shocked and offended the Jews, and if we're honest, sometimes it shocks and offends us. So here's point number two. Point number two is going to be a lot longer than point number one, okay? Point number one was that uh, God gave us the law. Point number two is that the law can't change us. It is powerless, but it's provocative. And I'm talking about the law, I mean the Ten Commandments, okay? But I want to help you this morning. I want to put this in shoe leather. When you think of the law, capital L, Ten Commandments, 
or the 630 codified laws, ceremonial, and all that in the Old Testament, it's okay to think of, of law lowercase l. In fact, you almost have to to understand what the Bible's teaching. How do laws affect us? They're all over the place. Laws, laws, everywhere laws. You see them, you see these signs, prohibitions, don't do this, don't do that, don't go here, don't go there. How do those laws hit you? Do you like them? Do you like it when you see a law? Do you rejoice like, glory, man, another law to protect me and bless me. I'm so thankful I can't walk on that grass. I'm so thankful I can't ride my skateboard there. They're just looking out for me. They don't want me to crack my head open. Laws are beautiful. Lawgivers are wonderful. Is that what we think? When you see a policeman on the side of the road, you like, fist bump, man, right back at you. I got you, 55. That's a great limit. Makes sense. No shade, chief. I ain't throwing, throwing no shade on you here. <laughs> How do you feel when you see a police officer when you're going down the road and you're going 80 and it's a 70? How do you feel? The same way most people feel when they see the Ten Commandments. Angry. Angry, right? Laws are everywhere. What do laws make you want to do? I like to hunt. And just imagine you've got a rifle slung over your shoulder. You've got permission, okay? You're legal. You're legit. You've got permission to hunt this property of your buddy, and you go there, and there's no deer, there's no buck, and you're walking out, you got your deer license, you got your deer tag in your pocket, and there's a fence that separates this property you have permission to hunt on from this property. You turn and look at the fence, and it says, no trespassing, no hunting, violators will be persecuted, prosecuted, sorry, slip there, and you see three 58-point bucks right on the other side of the fence. How do you feel? Angry. <laughs> feel angry. You feel like you've been tricked. Somebody's holding out on you because the, the deer are bigger on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where you can't walk, right? That's how we feel about laws. They're everywhere. Whether it's human laws or whether it's God's laws, what I'm trying to tell you is they often produce the opposite of their intention. Do you believe that? Check this out. Oh, excuse me. Here's the one. There was an experiment that was done. I'm going to spare you the details because it's very obvious. People are brought into a room and told to wait, and there's an authority that tells them I'll be right back, and they're left alone with a table, and there's a, a button, and it says, do not push this button, and there's a counter there, digital counter, and uh, they give them like five, ten minutes. What do you think happens 90% of the time? <laughs> yeah, you know what happens, don't you? Check this out. This is an actual sign. I don't even need to make the point, do I? Just look at the picture. Notice, please do not throw rocks at this sign. It's, it's uh, just riddled with dents. This was my favorite. No fishing from the bridge. I'm sure for a very good reason, except that there's a lot of fish under that bridge, right? <laughs> That's what happens. That's what the law produces in us, right? It produces its opposite. It produces its opposite. It, it excites us. Uh, and and if, we're, if we're honest, even from the, time that, from the time that we're little, I can remember people telling me, wipe that smile off your face. Do you know what that made me want to do? Especially me, man. I can't, I don't know. It's not because I'm a better person than anybody else. I just smile, I smile a lot. And when somebody would tell, me, would tell me to sit down or stand up, it had the opposite effect. It's like that movie, Dead Poet Society, when that angry dean of the school was telling the students, sit down. And the angry, uh, rebellious hero of the school, their teacher, Mr. Keating, walked in. And what did they do? They stood up on their desk, on top of their desk, and said, oh, captain, my captain. That's what we do in our hearts. If the law says sit down, we stand up in our hearts. If the law says stand up, we sit down in our hearts. If it says smile, we frown. If it says frown, we smile. It tends to produce its opposite
This is how God wants you to live in a world. This is how God wants you to be an ambassador and show the rest of the world what he's like. So those are three uses of the law as it's been taught classically and historically in Christianity. And when we get those things mixed up, uh, lots of bad things happen. What Paul is talking about in Romans 5 and some other passages I've read is the mirror. It's the first use of the law. It's not the second. It's not the third. It's the first use of the law. The law came in, why? To show you, look, bro, you're messed up. You are a broken human being. There's evil that resides inside of you. It shows you, when the law says you shall not covet, it shows you you are an envious person, you're a jealous person. Have you ever heard of somebody winning the lottery and, and there wasn't an ounce uh, of, of <laughs> just in, if we're just honest, in the place deep down inside of us, we don't talk about it at parties, if we're like, man. That would have been great. <laughs> that would have been great to have that $3 million power. I know the gambling, the evil of it. I get it. I'm just, I'm just being real in here with you. Or your neighbor gets a new BMW, and you're driving the 1979 Volkswagen, you know? Or you're, you're, I don't, I don't have to, your neighbor gets a new boat, or your neighbor gets married, or whatever it is. Um, the law provokes and incites in us the things that we know are wrong. It shows us that we're wrong. It shows us that we need help. So the law can't help you. What the law shows you is that you need help. Does that make sense? The law can't save you. The law shows you that you need saving. And that was what happened with Philip Yancey. He grew up in a culture that was using the law as a means of rescue. And that's why Philip Yancey thought God was a cosmic bully and that uh, God was perpetually angry with him and that he could never please God because the law was used in the wrong way. It was, it, was, uh, it was used to show him, like, look, you got to keep this for God to love you. This is God's standard, and if you don't meet it, God's not going to love you. That's the only way that the law was ever used. There was no grace in it at all. So often we, we miss what Romans 5, verse 20, talks about here. Um, and it's, that's not the only place that it's used. There, there's a couple of other places. Here's one of them. It's in Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Or excuse me, Galatians 3.19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the In Romans 3 it says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified. So you can't be justified. You can't be made right by the law uh, in his sight. Since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. The law is to be used... In the classic sense, in evangelism to show you, look, this is God's standard and you don't meet it. This is God's standard. It's fixed. It's permanent. It's never going to change. It's, he's never going to be lenient about this. This is the standard and you don't meet it. And so the law, in a sense, it drives us to despair, doesn't it, if we're honest. That's why trying to lower the standard of the law never works. It never works. And very often, uh, here's a word that people use, legalism. Uh, legalism, people say, those are cultures that people have too high a view of the law. And, and I would say, no, that's wrong. That's not what legalism is. Legalism is actually when people don't have a high enough standard of the law. The Pharisees' problem was they looked at the Ten Commandments and then they created their own interpretation of it. And they said, Keep the Sabbath. So that means you can only take this many steps on the Sabbath day. And if we don't take that many steps, we've kept it. Right? Honor your father and mother. That means uh, these external actions that if we keep them, then we've honored God's law. And Jesus came and he preached the Sermon on the Mount and it leveled them. He said, oh, you thought if, if you don't take a knife and stab somebody that you've kept the commandment, uh, not murder. He said, no, that actually means love your neighbor as yourself. And nobody does that. Only one person ever did that. It's Jesus. So th that's what the law was, was used for. And this is what Martin Luther said. Not Martin Luther King. This is Martin Luther the Reformer. He started the Protestant Reformation. He said this about human beings. We have a monster of self-righteousness. And that is what the law is. A big axe. He says, when the law drives you to the point of despair... Let it drive you a little further. Let it drive you straight into the arms of Jesus who said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. See, the law makes these big promises, but it can't deliver. 
The law can't deliver you. The law can't rescue you. The law can't help you. It is intended to drive you into the arms of Jesus. Now, the problem is not the law. Again, it's perfect. It's holy. It's righteous. It's just. The problem is us. We're broken. We're flawed. We have evil residing within us. That's why Romans 8 says uh, the law is weakened by the flesh. What the law could not do, Jesus did by condemning sin in the flesh. See, the law condemns the sinner, right? And Jesus came and condemned sin. Big difference. The law condemns the sinner. Jesus condemned sin and and took the condemnation on himself. He traded places with condemned sinners. So uh, here's one more illustration, maybe one more example of a, a failure of the law. For those of you who know history, you know in 1919, 1920, there was a huge push because of all of the social evils that were coming because of what many thought were because of alcohol. They said, you know what? We are going to stop this evil. We're going to shut it down. We're going to create this 18th Amendment, and it says you may not produce, you may not transport, you may not sell, or you may not consume alcohol. It was a complete and total comprehensive ban in America of alcohol. And and they said that this is going to stop the social evil. This is going to stop drunkenness. This is going to stop the prisons from being uh, just overran with criminals. And how did that experiment? They called it the noble experiment. And I get it. Kind of a noble design. But do you remember history? What happened? What did the prohibition? It was a 13-year ban on alcohol. What happened? What do, you, what do you think that law that said thou shalt not drink alcohol produced in people? What do you think? Let me give you another picture. That's what it produced. That's what it produced. And I know we're chuckling and we're laughing, but did you know that they, they created the 18th Amendment to stop rebellion? Do you know what it actually ushered into America? Organized crime on an unprecedented level. Bootlegging bribing, corruption of public officials who could get slid a $20 bill if they let you take your banned beer into a a salon or saloon. I get those mixed up. Anyway, uh, the mafia came into play. and, And you know what? Some people who just could not get access to alcohol, that's when the opium crisis started. Cocaine started to spread. If you're wondering when in American history did all these illegal, highly addictive drugs come in, that was the window right there. I'm not blaming it on the law. I'm just saying the law tends to produce its opposite effect, and that's why, that's why there was all these illegal consumption of alcohol. Everywhere there was a sign in the window that said no alcohol, out the back they were running a racket, right? And that's why eventually there was a huge celebration when the ban was over. They, they, they saw this is not going to work, this is just creating more criminals. So they banned it with the 21st Amendment. That's the story behind that, a little history lesson there. So that's the second point, is that the law cannot help you. The law cannot change you. The law tells you the truth. You're broken. We're dead. We have failed. And that's why point number three is the best news in the world. And it took us a while to get here. What's point number three? Let's read it in Romans 5. Check it out. We're not going to get to chapter 6 today. That was just a little prerequisite trailer for next time, okay? Here's the last part of Romans chapter 5. This is how he actually ends the chapter. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. And you're like, great. Thank you, God. You gave us a law, and it showed us that we're hopeless. It showed us that we're broken. It showed us that we're failures. And it actually excites us to want to sin more. God said, don't covet, and all I can do is be envious and covet my neighbor now. So now what do we do? And he says this. But where sin increased, grace abounded. Praise God. Hey, that ought to make us want to do a backflip. That, see, that's what it, it took Philip Yancey about 20 years to figure out. Nobody ever told him that. He was in a church. He was in a Bible college. He was raised in a Christian quote-unquote home. He never heard about that. Can I just make a side point? My friends, teach yourself this over and over. This is the one thing that is so counterintuitive and surprising to the human heart we forget it. We forget it. No other religion has this. No other worldview has this. It's surprising. It's shocking. You know, all we have is wait, wait till your father gets home. That's the law. That's why, you know, in Exodus 20, when the law was given to Israel, it was on a mountain that was dark. It was loud. There was thunder. There was lightning. There was a threat. If you come near the base of the mountain or touch it, you'll be executed on the spot. 
And what was that saying? You wait till your father gets down here. But what does grace say? What does grace show us? What happened when the father came down here? Did he have a stick? What happened when Jesus came? I have come to call not the righteous, but, to, but the unrighteous to repentance. Jesus came and he had open arms for broken sinners like us. And he said, I came to bring grace. We need both. We need grace and truth. Jesus brought both. He embodied grace. He said, I came to show you what the father is like. He told a parable about the father waiting on the front porch for this prodigal that went out and, and wasted and spent his, all of his life savings that his father gave him on prostitutes, on harlots, on partying. And then he came home, he had this speech rehearsed, and it says the father saw him from the front porch, and his heart was moved with compassion, and he ran out to him. That's grace. That's the heart of Christianity. It's so shocking, it's so surprising, we forget it. And that's what the entire book of Romans is about. It's interesting to me that Paul didn't say, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. He didn't use that word increased. He chose a stronger word in Greek, and he added this intensifying prefix and preposition to it. And it means, it's hyper in, in Greek, hooper or hyper. Superabounded, it overflowed. If you take sin and you put grace beside it, grace is going to trump it every time. They're not even on the same playing fields, not in the same sport. He says, sin increased, but grace abounded. It superabounded. It swallowed it up. That's what Philip Yancey discovered. Can I ask you a question? Have you discovered that yet? Have you heard that message yet? Have you been to churches or grew up in Christian homes or been on, you know, religious university campuses and you've heard a lot about this law and about this just God and he is just and, and, and this righteous God, and he, in, he is righteous, and he's angry at the wicked, and there's truth in that. But if that's where we stop short, we just live in despair. We live in paranoia. And we live thinking, man, I can't, I can't exist in this environment. It's too much. So I'll, 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 I'll find a way to, to kind of keep these rules and keep God at arm's distance. He's happy with me. I'm happy with him. We tolerate each other. And that's just a lie. That can't happen. Jesus didn't come so that God would tolerate you. Jesus came as the only human being that could keep those laws that you couldn't keep. You realize that. We, we, we boast all the time that we're not saved by works, which is true. We're not saved by our works. We are saved by somebody else's works, right? That law had to be kept. You and I could not keep it. We would not keep it. We cannot keep it. What did Jesus come and do for us? He was our stand-in. He was our substitute. He was our stuntman, right? To use Hollywood language, Tinseltown. He stood in for us. He took the wrath of God, our punishment for breaking the law, and then the law still had to be kept. That's why Jesus lived 33 and a half. You ever wonder, why did Jesus, if he just had to die for us and that was it, he could have just came down on a weekend, right, and, and done this thing real quick, and then third day, boom, out of the grave, ascension, he's done. No, he lived 33 and a half years. Why? So that the perfect righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. He was a perfect child. He never sinned. He never talked back to his, to his mother or Joseph. He never had an, an, an aberrant thought, an inappropriate action. He never said a, spoke an unkind word that wasn't necessary. Everything he said was necessary, which is amazing to me. As a pastor, when I'm reading Matthew 23, you brood of vipers. You're like, oh, Jesus sinned there. No, he didn't. They were a brood of vipers, and they needed to be called out on it. Nobody else had the courage to do it. Jesus did. He walked into the temple, and he overturned the table. Money went everywhere, and you're like, Jesus lost control. No, he didn't. He was in perfect control of himself. He took the time to go out and make a whip. <laughs> he was a carpenter, remember? Wouldn't that have been awesome? I know I'm off script here. Wouldn't that have been awesome? Jesus walked into the temple. What, what would you have I have done? In our zeal, we would have been consumed by zeal in the wrong way, and we would just throw things and like punch people and like started wrestling people, doing MMA, right? Jesus went, it says he looked around in Greek. He looked, he observed. He went out, and he made a whip. <laughs> Perfect, absolute, complete control of himself, and he walked back in, and he chased out the money changers. No animals were harmed in the filming of this <laughs> thing, right? He drove them out. He exposed them. He called them the religious hypocrites that they were. He was the protector of the people, and he said, this is my father's house, and it's, to be, it's, a, it's a house of prayer, and you made it a den of robbers. Jesus restored the temple to its original place where God's presence could be met.
by sinners like you and I through the, through the mediation of a Messiah. Man, I hope this is making sense a little bit. Everybody's really quiet today. I get it. It's a kind of a quiet morning, isn't it? Grace is, su- is supreme, guys. The reign of grace. Listen to what he talks about in, in chapter 5 here. I didn't even finish, did I? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, you look around and you see sin reigning, funerals, death, cancer, hatred, evil, broken laws everywhere, sin reigning in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the reign of grace. Grace is reigning on a throne. You, we, we, don't, we don't see the total picture of that yet. But grace is supposed to be reigning in our hearts. That's what Paul's going to get to the next chapter. That's the most amazing thing about grace, guys. Grace comes into your heart. It changes your heart toward God and toward His law. And grace sends you back to the Ten Commandments. And now, 1 John says, His commandments are not burdensome to us. Our hearts have been changed. Now we want to fulfill those laws. We don't see them now as threatening and menacing. We see them as my father wants me to live life this way. This is how life works best. This is how a human being flourishes and thrives. These are, not, these are not meant to crimp our freedom. These are meant to give us freedom. We love these. These are a reflection of our father. He died for us. Heck yeah, I want to keep those things. And now I've got the power to do it through the grace of God that transformed me. There is a, uh, there's a, a story. How many people have read Pilgrim's Progress or are familiar with it? Outside of the Bible, it's the... Uh, I'm told that it's the most popularly popular book that's ever been printed. It's Pilgrim's Progress. And John Bunyan, it's a book filled with allegory about what the Christian life is about. And there's a really powerful place in there where if people would pay attention, he, he really gives a beautiful picture of, of what the law does, the first use of the law. And he says there's a, there's a parlor. There's a really dusty parlor. And it's been undisturbed for a long time. And somebody calls for a man with a broom to come in and clean it. It's really dusty, it's really dry, the window's open, so the beams of sunshine are shining through the window, and here comes this man with a broom, and he starts sweeping. Now, what do you think happens? Dust goes all over the place, and the rays of sun come through the window, you can see the particles rising up in the air, dust is everywhere. And he says, and the person in there starts to choke on the dust. What do you think the dust represents? Sin. Sin. What does the broom represent? The law, that's what the law does. This is our sin, it's on the floor. Like Paul said, there was a time when apart from the law, sin was dead. And then the law came in. And through it, sin took occasion and it was stirred up. And it's everywhere, that's what the law does. And then Bunyan says this. And so a lady was called for who would come and would sprinkle water on the dirty, dusty floor so that it could be cleaned properly. And Bunyan, in his allegory, he is showing you This water is the grace of God. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Only the gospel can subdue sin. And then the floor could be swept, he says, with pleasure. And John Bunyan even had a rhyme about the law and about the gospel. He said this, run, John, run. The law demands but gives me neither feet nor hands. Much greater things the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That's what the gospel does. That's what the grace of God does. That's, that's, that's how powerful it is. That's what it's intended to do. Well, let me close with this. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, by the way, said this. He said, you cannot appreciate the second half of this verse if you do not appreciate the first half. This is actually a summary of the Christian message. Do you know why some people are not more amazed by grace? They haven't looked at the law. <laughs> they don't realize how far short they have fallen. If the grace of God is just like, you know what, that's great, but... Uh, I could have done that for myself, I guess, the penalty, maybe just with some community service at a soup kitchen. It's like, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. Those are the people that think that Jesus just came to be our moral example or a good teacher. He, he didn't. Jesus came to take the penalty that we all deserve. There's a book that was written that was turned into a movie. Can't vouch for the movie. It's been a long, long, long time since I've seen it. It's a PG-13, so you never know what you're getting. Just want to give a disclaimer here. Um, it's called Cider House Rules. It was a, a novel written in 1985 by John Irving, and it talks about a cider house property. There's, a, there's an apple orchard there. There's a lot of things that are going on in the novel and, and in the movie, uh, but there's, there's, there's one place that struck me at, uh, as you consider the writing in the, in the novel. 
he says that there were these apple pickers that every year, every season, they would come into this orchard and they, and they would uh, pick apples and some of them they would keep and sell to the grocery and the market and the others they would just turn into cider. And uh, every year it's the same group of workers that come and most of them are poor, uh, they haven't, they're uneducated, they're illiterate. And uh, one year an educated guy comes and his name is Homer and he's living in this cider house. They all have to live in the cider house for the several weeks that they're picking there on the orchard. And he notices that there's a list of rules tacked up in the cider house. That's the name of the book, name of the movie, Cider House Rules. And it's tacked up on this beam and he notices that what the rules say, nobody's obeying them. Nobody's obeying them. So there's, so there's, a, place, there's a place in this novel uh, where he says, are we supposed to be doing these things? The rules say, and then there's the head picker. His name is uh, Mr. Rose, and he says this. He says, Homer, you're the only one who reads those rules. So you're the only one who feels like, doing, like he's doing something wrong, and all the others laugh. And then some time elapses, and then the, near the end of the movie, this was a, a really powerful scene from my memory and, and in the novel. Near the end, you know, nobody knows what the rules say, so they ask him. They're like, hey, let's tear those rules down, but first... Why don't you read them, Homer, and tell us what we've been missing out on? This is, what he, this is what happens. He recites the rules out loud. One, please don't smoke in bed. And they're all smoking in bed throughout the whole book and the movie, you know. Two, please don't go up on the roof to eat your lunch. Three, please, even if you are very hot, do not go up on the roof to sleep. Four, there should be no going up on the roof at night. <laughs> And then at that point, uh, one of the guys who can't read, his name is Peaches, he reacts. They're outrageous, them rules, he says. That's the best place to be is on the roof. And then Mr. Rose says, Peaches, who lives here in this cider house? Who grinds them apples? Who presses that cider? Who cleans up the mess? Who just plain lives here, just breathing in the vinegar? Somebody who don't live here made them rules. Them rules ain't for us. We're the ones who make the rules. We're making our own rules every day. And I think, I couldn't help but think, man, as you read that, as you think of that, that's what a lot of people think about the commandments. God's just holding out on us. And how dare he? You know, we, that's our anthem. We make our own rules. We'll do whatever we want to do. My body, my rules. I'll do with my body whatever I want. I'll do with my body whatever I want. I'll sleep with whoever I want. I'll spend my money on whoever I want. I'll be friends with whoever I want. I'll go where I want, when I want, and how I want. That's our anthem, right? It's just interesting when you think about Mr. Rose saying, who wrote those rules? He don't live here, but he does live here. He does. Jesus did live here. He came here. He existed here. The Bible says we do not have a high priest who is distanced from us and unsympathetic and a stranger to what a hard life on a broken planet and a cursed body feels like. Jesus was tired. Jesus was persecuted. Jesus felt alone. Jesus felt all the things that we felt without sin. He understands. He didn't, he didn't grind the apples to make cider. Jesus Christ himself was crushed, the Bible says. He knows those rules. He knows what the punishment is for breaking those rules. And he took it for you and for me. That's why God's grace is so amazing, and it's super abundant, and it's overflowing, and that's what, what Paul wants us to understand. That's what the whole book of Romans is about. Paul wants you, and he wants me to understand the gospel, and to celebrate the gospel, and to share the gospel with others, and to remind yourself of it every single day of your life. Amen? That's amazing grace. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we are not changed by being told what we need to do for God, but we are changed by being told what God and Jesus Christ did for us. We were helpless. We were hopeless. You came. You took our place. You have showered us with grace. And Lord, only one thing is required of us to receive that grace, and that is humility. That is to be humbled to the dust. That is to realize, as Philip Yancey did in that prayer meeting, that we, we are the tramp lying in the ditch, helpless and hopeless, and you call on us, Lord, to recognize our sin, to see our helpless condition, to recognize our rebellion, our transgressions, our trespassing against you, Lord. We have violated your commandments. 
We have taken advantage of your kindness and your graciousness over and over. And we are worthy recipients, Lord, of the punishment that is threatened from the law. What you require is for us to repent, for us to acknowledge, to agree with you, Lord, that we need help, that we are sinners. We have fallen so short. Will you please forgive us? Will you please change our heart? Will you please reconcile us to God? Will you take our penalty for us? Will you change us? Will you heal us? Will you restore us? Will you rescue us? And Lord, your grace is abundant. It falls like the rain did this morning and in, in a torrential downpour of shower on us, Lord, when we ask you for it. I pray if there is anyone here who has not recognized their sin, who has not looked in the perfect mirror of your law and seen your goodness, your perfection, your beauty, your holiness, your justice, and seen how far short we fall, I pray that they would do that right now, Lord. They would call out for grace and for mercy, and they would just drink in the, the good news of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to rescue us. Thank you for that hope that we're offered. Thank you for that promise. <clears throat> in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, thank you for, for being patient this morning. We, we always have at the end of a message, we have a couple of things. One is we have a, a Selah song. It's a word that you see in the book of Psalms, and it means pause, reflect, think about what you heard, think about what God would have you do. We don't, we don't have an altar call where you, we call you to come down front, but you can have an altar call in your heart right now. And you can say, you know what, God, I'm a sinner, and I've never understood this message of grace before. I want you to change me. I want to give my life to you. I want you to forgive me. I want to become a Christian. I want to follow you. I want to be a, dis a disciple of Jesus. I want him to be my Lord and my Savior. Maybe that's happened to you this morning. If that's the case, I would love to hear about that. We have a team of people in our back, uh, back of the auditorium this morning as we sing this song. They're going to be there to pray with you, uh, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, if you just want somebody to pray with, they're back there for you, or you can just sit quietly in your seat and reflect on what you've heard and thank God for His abundant grace. And then we're going to hear some announcements, and we're going to be sent back out uh, to be messengers of this good news that we've heard today to a world that's in desperate need right now. So let's sing, brothers. Thank you. Well, Galatians 6.14 says, But far be it from me, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for me and my family, when grace went from somewhere up here to here, there was no room for boasting because the only pride that we could have was the pride in our Lord Jesus Christ who suffered on my behalf and Sometimes I often say to myself, why should I have any gain from his reward? How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure That he should give his only son To make a wretch his treasure How great the pain of searing loss The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory behold the man upon a cross my sin upon his shoulders Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know finished
I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Thank you, Vitaly and Michael. Um, before we go, I just want to um, just update you on some announcements, um, and then we'll say our charge together. But um, we're kicking off the new year um, with five Sundays in this month. And um, if you're new here, every time there's five Sundays in a month, that fifth Sunday we have um, a family-style worship um, where all ages, including the kids, um, we worship together outside, um, weather permitting. And thank God the past, I feel like every fifth Sunday that I can remember the weather has been um, has been great for us. Um, during that time, um, we'll hear a, a message that is also geared towards um, the kids, which is really awesome. Um, we'll do baptisms, recognize new members, and then afterwards we'll um, fellowship and have um, lunch. Um, we'll be grilling out again um, like we did last time. Um, but if you are interested in being baptized or becoming a member, um, now's the time uh, to talk to an elder, um, talk to talk to Tommy, talk to Matt. Um, you can email me at contact at gracelifeflorida.com. Um, for the membership, um, there's um, what we have um, as our membership book. Um, it's called I Am a Church Member. Those are free um, for you to read uh, just to fully understand what being a church member means. And you can get those on the shelf in the lobby. You can grab one of those. Um, we would like you to read uh, read that before um, before committing to becoming a member and then speaking with an elder. So if you have any questions about that, you can email me, um, grab me after the service or an elder, and uh, we can talk to you more about that. But that's coming up the last Sunday of the month, fifth Sunday, um, just normal time right here um, and dress comfy because we'll be outside. Um, and then also we had our very first student ministry uh gathering um, last week and uh, Matt Carr um, just reported just some great things. I think he said um, it was 18 students, which is really, really awesome. So please um, continue to pray for our student ministry and uh, the leaders um, at, as that launches. Um, next week um, will be the students fellowship meeting. So they um, will take a time to have a game night or a movie night, and Matt's going to get me um, some more details on that. Um, but your quickest update on student ministry stuff is to either click that QR code or in the app, join the student ministry ministry group if you are a parent of a student or you are a student and you would like um, consistent updates about what's going on within student ministry. Um, and then lastly, I can't believe it's already that time of year again. Um, the end of year um, giving statements um, are going to be sent out. The last two years, we've sent them um, via email so that you can uh, quickly access them. Um, you don't have to wait in the mail for them. So now is the time um, to go into your planning center account and make sure that your email address is updated to the email that you would like that sent to. Um, and then if you would like a paper copy, um, go ahead and email me at contact at gracelifeflorida.com. It's right Right there um, on the screen and let me know that you would just prefer your statement to be sent to you um, in the mail and I can most definitely get that to you um, a hard paper copy um, and 
I'm going to send an email out to all of you as well um, with this information. So uh, don't worry if you can't write the email down or get your phone out fast enough. That's totally fine. Um, I'm going to send a communication out with all of this information about the giving statements as well. And that's all I have for announcements today. So if you want to stand, we're going to say our charge together before we go. Just a reminder of um, what we're called to do um, beyond this morning. Say it with me. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his love to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent.